University of Texas Press presents From a Taller Tower, The Rise of the American Mass Shooter by veteran journalist Seamus McGraw. There is no silence on earth deeper than the silence between gunshots. From a Taller Tower faces the depths of that silence, which follows the wake of the mass shootings that have plagued the United States. It is available for pre-order now at utexaspress.com and wherever good books are sold. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. The idea of taking on debt is deeply ingrained in American life. After all, you can do whatever you want. Buy a big house, drive a nice car, get a great education, just as long as you can pay for it. According to the most recent tally, Americans have over 14 trillion in consumer debt an average of 145,000 per household. A significant portion of those incredible numbers are student loans. After all, how can you get a great job without a college degree? And while student loan forgiveness was floated during the presidential election, the incoming administration has made no firm commitment to erasing or even alleviating it. Another solution has been ISAs, income share agreements, which allows students to attend school without paying tuition in exchange for a percentage of their future income, which is in turn reaped by investors. However, as Avi Usher Shapiro writes in the December issue, ISAs can be predatory loans in disguise. I spoke with Usher Shapiro, who covers technology and human rights issues at the Thomson Reuters Foundation about ISAs, student debt, and what happens when college is treated as an asset rather than a public good. Your piece is about income share agreements and among certain technocratic politicians, uh, centrists mostly, they have become like the solution to the student debt crisis rather than debt forgiveness. Can you describe what an income share agreement is and how it's structured? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, at its very kind of basic level, it's an agreement that a student in exchange for education on the front end will sort of agree that on the back end, they'll pay as a percentage of their wages. And and, and it has, has a lot of different forms it, it can take. And, and the way that agreement can be structured can range from, you know, really in intense and, and insane sounding terms like 17% of your income to to more to more manageable ones and, and they can be timed uh, for a certain period of time and instruction in a whole variety of ways but the sort of basic logic to it is that in exchange for that education you will promise a payment that is lashed to your performance uh, in the labor market after you finish being educated and I should say that the, that the popularity of the income share agreement, I wouldn't say that it's primarily coming from the center left or technocrats. I would say it's really coming from all corners. There's a lot of enthusiasm for it in Silicon Valley. There's enthusiasm among sort of like heterodox economic thinkers, uh, similar people who are into, into the universal basic income who see it as like a very nifty fix. Um, there's, of course, massive enthusiasm on the right among kind of classic libertarian type people who, who, who see the injection of, of 
market forces into any sector of, of, of the economy to be to be uh, something that's positive. So part of what I did for my piece was was talking to people kind of all over the map about how they felt about these income and share agreements and, and tried to find some people who were excited about them who might make strange bedfellows, you know, people who considered themselves to be uh, progressives and then people who, who considered themselves to be sort of free market fundamentalists as well. Okay. Uh, so when you say 17% of future earnings, how long does that last? How long do these income share agreements take to pay back in situations where the tuition is not declared? So they're structured in all sorts of ways. And in, in, in my piece, I follow uh, a young guy named Dusan Simeon, who lives out in San Francisco and signed away 17% of his income for, I believe it was 42 months. But the way that they work is, you know, if a month counts or not, it can be very technical, right? Like it can be 42 months, uh, but if you're not working at all, you you don't start uh, logging the months yet or this kind of thing. So I, I think a, a big feature of the income share agreement and one of the reasons why um, they're seen by some to be more you know, attractive than a, the loan is that almost all of them do end at some point, right? You're not going to carry around this 17% for the rest of your life as you might with the student loan in the United States where you can't discharge it in bankruptcy and, and many people get saddled with them for, 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 for a long time. So, you know, one of the, the selling points of the, of the income share agreement is that like, you know, this ends, uh, this will end and maybe it will be a couple of years that you're paying a percentage of your income, but eventually you will be free of it, um, which in a world where people are like widely traumatized by student loans or, or tales of student loans in their family or amongst their friends, it can assuage a lot of concerns to be told like, you're not going to have this in, into your 60s, you know, which happens to people with student loan debt. Yeah, exactly. Well, we'll come back to Dusan in a second, but I, I want to go back to you're talking about the you know, this is sort of coming from all sides, this, uh, the ISA idea. And you trace the intellectual underpinnings of income share agreements back to a paper written in 1955 by Milton Friedman. And he proposed the ISA model as a response to the growth of publicly funded universities, which he was afraid would, as you put it, quote, discourage the teaching of viewpoints that challenged the state, end quote. And the proposal was eventually picked up by Yale for somewhat different reasons, but it seems worth pausing to ask how Freeman's prediction about public universities look today. Like, were there, were there good reasons at the time to think that more public schools would mean more ideological conformity? Uh, yeah, I think it depends on who you ask, right? I mean, the, the 50s is definitely a, a long time before I came on the scene. Um, but from from sort of talking to people and, and reporting the piece, it seems like, you know, what was going on at the time is, is, is that, you know, we're obviously seeing a massive expansion of higher education in the United States to the GI Bill. We're seeing, you know, early attempts to try to desegregate schools. And, and we're seeing also, you know, the birth of the University of California system, we're seeing the percolations of a public sector universities. And, and Friedman, you know, he was really afraid of, you know, collectivism. And he was looking to the Soviet Union and, and thinking, you know, that the degree to which governments were both funding and operating schools, that was really what he was concerned about. He was seeing, uh, you know, public schools where the government was sending the people there for free, and they were also paying the salaries of teachers. And this sort of concentration of power in the state and education was something that he was 
definitely afraid of. And he wanted to cleave those things off of each other, right? So that's mm-hmm. the same logic of the, of the voucher program, which he also in, came up with in that same essay, right? There's this essay on government education that he wrote in the 50s that now serves as this kind of blueprint for a range of kind of right-wing education proposals it can be traced to the same essay that he proposes ISAs and, and also vouchers. And you know, the idea for the voucher program, right, is like the government writes the check, but he gives it to people and then they get to choose from a wide array of private providers. And in that way, it kind of, you don't have decentralized government schools, right? But the flip side of that mm-hmm. is obviously, the, is that, you know, that we're also seeing a time where the, you know, the, the notion of the government school was highly suggestive, at least go into the next decade of, of, of integration and, you know, the federal government being able to, to, to push for a lot more equity and, and racial justice through the school system. And, and there's definitely an intellectual tradition that kind of coincides with Friedman around government schools where that paranoia is really a paranoia about integrated schools and a paranoia about schools that would force the government's ideas on, onto local communities, which would which really was a code for integration. So I, I think you do see probably legitimate concerns about the concentration of government power in, 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 you know, in the fifties where you do have, you know, definitely some, some things to be concerned about in the Soviet education system for sure. But obviously that's manifesting itself in the U S in a very different way. And there's, there's kind of a cruel irony in the fact that Friedman proposed the ISA idea to prevent intellectual dominance by the state, you know, all of the Soviet mode. And now, as you document in your piece, ISAs seem to be contributing directly to the devaluation of humanities programs, which are one of the main places where all kinds of people can learn to think critically about systems of power and have the mm-hmm. ability to challenge what a government or a political party or the home of free thinking, I will argue. Could you go into a bit more detail about exactly how ISAs steer students away f- from, you know, humanities programs and what the long-term ramifications of that acceleration could look like? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that that's an, and that's a very interesting way of, of, of framing it. I, I think that, so if you look at the actual, there's kind of, ISAs operate on a couple of levels. One is like this theoretical idea that like is in the you know, you can find in like think tanks and like dreamers who are like, wouldn't it be amazing if people only had to pay back their education when they got jobs and did well, and we could sort of align all these incentives together and everything would work out. But then there's like, how do they operate in the real world? And like, when you go to some uh, of the universities that have started to to tinker around with ISAs, and the one that's done it most prominently is Purdue University, and you start to sort of look at the terms that they offer students for ISAs, you'll find that, you know, the logic of the system dictates that, you know, someone who's going to go get a degree in humanities, if someone's going to go get a degree in the example I use in my piece is African-American studies, they're going to uh, have to pledge a much higher percentage of their income back to the school in the future, because when compared to someone who is going to major in say computer science, because the school knows that you're going to make less money over the long term and we want to recoup our investment in you. So we're going to have to price the ISA to be commensurate with that. So that that's how we see it sort of operating in the real world. And, and, and it, so some people would, would response to that would be like, great, the school is just being honest with students about like, hey, like if you're going to major in African-American studies, like you're going to make less money and you got to be prepared for that. And, and there's, you know, what people call like price signaling. Uh, but, you know, if, mm-hmm. if you zoom out and think a little bit more holistically about the kind of society you want to live in, you know, it raises a lot of questions like, 
do you, is this the kind of way we want to be thinking about education? Do we want students to be charged more, uh, at least as a percentage of their income, for an education in the humanities uh, than than someone who goes into economics? What would happen if we generalize this principle to the entire education system? Would would we just you know highly incentivize people more than they already are incentivized to to sort of pursue only lucrative paths? And maybe there are other ways to structure the payment of education that doesn't you know, slap the student in the face first day, day one, telling them, you know, pick, picking a humanities major means that you're going to owe a higher percentage of your income, because we just don't think you're going to make that much money. If that's the first signal you get from your, your university, I mean, right. that, that that just creates a certain type of society, right? And I, I mean, it's also pressure coming from parents too, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's you know? a whole lot of signals that people get about what, what kinds of things they should study. But I think, it, it, yeah, it's important to keep in mind that at least the way that the ISAs are conceived of broadly now in the university system, that they're, you know, basically a way to to more firmly connect the cost of education to how you do in the labor market. And that's mm-hmm. the sort of basic logic of that is like, hey, like, watch out for jobs that don't pay well. Right. And I mean, I think, I think the irony, of course, of this what you're talking about with ISAs, but also just this larger idea floating around in culture that, oh, you know, we have too many humanities majors, you you know, you can't go work at the English factory, can you? But it's like, I'm sorry, if you if you are creating so many people, if you're training so many people to code, at some point that market is going to be flooded and that is going to devalue coding. So it's not actually going to be this like huge payday this is this is a way to kind of devalue that skill i mean there's a high demand for it at the moment but it's going to you know if we're talking about market forces like the outcome of this is kind of clear yeah i think that's right and i think yeah the idea that the market forces are are a good kind of organizing principle for how we should educate our citizens is you know i think sometimes just kind of an easy out, a way to not ask hard questions about the sorts of things we should be prioritizing as a society, right? I mean, if, and if you start looking at some of the programs, so I mean, like, as I show in my piece, like so far, like the place that ISAs have been really hot is in coding academies, which are, you know, places mm-hmm. where you go for a year or two, and they, they teach you how to code. And and these are things that have been really popular over the last couple of years. And, and part of it is because you have all of these people who have been told this narrative, which is that like, you don't have the skills for, for the current economy, you need to reskill yourself, you need to go learn to code. And, and so they go to these schools, and these schools say, like, yeah, like, it's thought of as sort of this easy pathway, like you learn to code, you get a job, you make a lot of money. And so people go to these schools, and they sign up and the way they pay for them is a percentage of their future income. But if you start drilling into these schools, uh, you know, learning to code at one of these schools is not a guarantee of a bunch of money in the future or a great job. You know, it's it's more of like a narrative about what the economy needs, which is these like people who have gone to one year of coding school. But like that's in and of itself is a bit of a myth. Right. So, mm-hmm. I mean, this this notion that the market is going to emit all these signals about what we should be studying and where should we be studying. And if we use ISAs, we can sort of like more finely attune our educational resources to the whims of the market and everyone will be better off. I mean, I, so far, at least that hasn't been borne out by the kinds of results we've seen from ISAs in a lot of these coding camps where you have a lot of people who are kind of floundering, haven't found work, the education is substandard, or they went in when there was a big demand for coders and the 
the demand has ebbed. They're sitting there unemployed. I mean, the, the ISA is, as a sort of fix all is, you know, is a dangerous mythology, I would say. Absolutely. And I think um, your story follows Dusan Simeon, who is in San Francisco, aka the belly of the coding beast. And he's, he's a San Francisco native. Um, and he signed an ISA to enter in a two-year course in software engineering and then was pretty clearly unfairly kicked out. And he was just sort of left to hang. And he's still beholden to the the terms of the ISA he signed. And so I wanted to ask, could you walk through some of the after effects of someone who was, you know, someone who was ripped off like at every possible turn? And then, you know, what about his story that made it seem like the right one for this piece? Yeah. So the thing about uh, Dusan, which is, you know, for me was really compelling, is that, you know, he is kind of the archetype of what these, both what these coding schools are pitching to students and also what ISAs are pitching, which is sort of like, he is a super smart guy with sort of technical aptitude. He worked in uh, electrical wiring stuff. He's black. He's, you know, he's been denied some opportunities along the way in his life through things that are no fault of his own. He doesn't have the money up front to pay for a fancy education, but he seems like the perfect candidate for a place that could take his technical aptitude and, and turn it into to a, to a skill and decoding. And also for someone who because of no fault of his own, doesn't have 50 grand lying around and is scared to take out a huge amount of debt, you know? So mm-hmm. he's kind of on paper, the kind of person that the ISA and especially the coding school ISA is, is designed for. So, you know, I, when, when I, when I was first introduced to him, I thought, you know, it would be really important to follow his story and see, see how this actually goes. And he, you know, signs up for this uh, ISA coding academy called Holburton in San Francisco, which also has campuses all over the world, but they just had their flagship campus was in San Francisco. A common feature of the coding camp model, too. Yeah, yeah. And it's also it's actually started by French entrepreneurs, but they were in Silicon Valley. And yeah, so I think I wanted to tell his story because I thought that he really presented such an archetypal um, example of, of, of what the kind of person this is designed to help. And also he was a really generous guy and really easy to talk to and, and incredibly, uh, uh, yeah, incredibly open about his experience and which was not a flattering experience for him. He had a really tough time. His family suffered. He suffered. He did not succeed in the school. And he, he was not particularly proud of, of that time of his life where he was basically after struggling to, to, to learn to code in this school, he, he was kicked out over accusations that he had, you know, been uh, plagiarizing, which were pretty <laughs> dubious, uh, though, and then found himself back in his old job kind of installing electrical equipment, but now had 17% of his income that he had signed away for, for access to that education that didn't really get him anywhere. Right. And I think the plagiarism accusation is particularly ironic because the whole model of Holburton is that former students teach new students. So it's like, well, if someone is, if you're getting your information from someone else, then 
I mean, I also like him, there's only so many ways you know, to cope. I, 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 like, I don't have there's a full so many levels of like cruelty. I'll let you know if I hear more in this, I mean, obviously, yeah, in, I, mean, uh, I wasn't in able, his story. Like, what, I wasn't able to like adjudicate the truth of the matter when it comes to the plagiarism accusation. You know, other students who were there at the time thought it was a bizarre thing. As you, I mean, but I think that the big picture, other students who had similar like, experiences, especially the regulator the, um, was sort of coding like, academy space. Uh, sorry when to look into to them. And eventually, kind of decided they have the possibility to, to bake in some pretty perverse exactly incentives uh, for legal schools. And they were basically right. forced to you know, shut down their San Francisco uh, education and, and stop um, collecting the to move through as many students as possible because and 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 then they begin to get paid. You know, when these students get jobs and and and. Here, I believe that a the number of California schools, not just Holbert, but others as well. The piece as we, you describe when people start to dig some of the institutions it seems like that use really ISAs. a volume game. Like they some don't want to pay teachers. For your colleges, they don't want to spend like a lot of time creating a curriculum. And you, you can teach yourself to code but on, there's by a yourself. You know, I mean, a lot of schools that only do, do technical uh, you know, training. If you're really dedicated and you really have shady. the time. And so, in a certain way, the ISA model seems technically possible, comparable you know, to with the a little bit of guidance. Model. So, a lot of these places kind of uh, set up where an environment of where individual students are encouraged to teach themselves to code and given some resources to do so. And some portion of the students figure it out and then they owe money back to school. And some portion of the students scores. never figured out and, and they cases, leave one of and the key you know that's the kind of the, the business model right and, 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 and the isa definitely helps that, that uh, business model get off the ground for a lot of these places because what they tell the students is like hey like you show up so here do we, you sign up for the isa you don't pay anything out the front gate if you don't if it doesn't work for you you don't you don't pay but the thing that they often don't emphasize and this was the case in case character that i follow that's a good question i haven't thought about it that way i mean let me let me try to forty thousand dollars a year i do pay even if you don't get a job in tech and that's what happened to him you know so they started coming after him after he made started to make, you know, $40,000 a year, which is nothing yes. in San Francisco and not a coding uh, salary at all. But he was still being asked to, to, to give 17% of his salary come together and like, hey, let's he start our own school. Let's get a charter from the district. We want to try something different, right? But then it evolved in such a way that it has what you're talking about now, which has like wealthy parents and their foundation set up these schools or we have these kind of strange uh, ideological places that are really into like punishing kids or I'm, you know, I, I'm not an expert yeah. on the charter school movement, but I understand that like, you know, there's some kernel of, of, of wisdom in, in the notion that like, you know, it would be nice if there was more experimentation and teacher control of schools. Sure. But then the way it's developed has been problematic. I think you could say the same thing with ISAs in the sense that the notion, like the core notion of the income share agreement, which has a lot of to recommend it. And I spoke to a lot of people in my piece that I that I think are very passionate and very smart progressives who think that the ISA is a really powerful tool. And it, because basically what it could do in theory is it could find a way for the students uh, to be a progressive, a tool of progressive, basically progressive taxation, where students who make a lot of money pay more for education than students who don't. And that's not a terrible idea, right? Um, and the question is really like how you implement it. And, and th there have been a lot of um, there have been a lot of attempts for people to to take the the sort of kernel of logic at the core of the ISA and and use it in like a public model, like an organ. They wanted to do this thing where they would get like a pool of millions of dollars, the public money, where students would be able to withdraw from that pool to pay for their own education, and they would pay back into the pool as a percentage of their income 
after they graduated. And you could see that being a very interesting idea, like a public renewable source of funds that you could progressively fund education. But, but, but what's happened is it's been taken up mostly by um, people who are uh, in the private sector in Silicon Valley and at these coding boot camps, which is where most of the work on ISAs is being done. So I think it, it, it's similar to the, the school choice movement in that sense, where it, it, you, know, you take what might be a reasonable concern, which is that there's not enough room for teachers to experiment and families to come together and start their own experimental schools. And then it morphs into this thing that is, 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 you know, has a lot of problems. Same with the ISAs, where you have this kernel of, I think, insight, which is that how do we make payment for education more progressive? And, but it ends up morphing into this kind of free market thing that, that tends to, at least in the real world, has not been as progressive as you might hope. Uh, you interviewed Senator Elizabeth Warren, who has been a vocal critic of ISAs. And, you know, it's worth quoting her statement, which is that instead of, quote, inventing new ways for the industry to saddle student borrowers with years of crushing debt, we should end the student debt crisis by canceling student loan debt and bringing down education costs, end quote. So there's, there's clearly a tension here between those who think ISAs can be refashioned into a tool for progressive reform, as you're describing, and those like Warren who see them as a distraction or worse from the more vital project of making education cheaper. Do you have an opinion yourself about where the emphasis should be placed? It's an interesting framing. I think, so just to step back a little bit, I think one of the reasons why people like Senator Warren and and others kind of in the student debt world, people who are very concerned about student debt and are concerned about predatory student debt, like people at the uh, Student Borrowers Center and and uh, National Consumer Law Center. And, you know, there's a number of progressive and kind of consumer oriented groups that are like have their backs up pretty hard against ISAs. You know, they're pretty freaked out. One of the reasons for that is we've seen an intense interest in ISAs from some like some pretty entrenched Wall Street types. And as I write about yeah. uh a guy, a figure in my piece named Chuck Trafton, who started a uh, ISA trading marketplace called Edley, which is a place where kind of Wall Street investors can come and they can buy packages of ISAs in order to gain access to the stream of income down the line from those students. And this is an increasingly common, uh, what they call an asset class, a type of asset where you could buy ISAs. You can go, uh, if you have a million dollars, you can pay a million dollars for other people's education and then you can down the line start getting a percentage of their salary as as you come along. So obviously you could see why people like Senator Warren or people in the consumer rights kind of scene are skeptical of that. They think that that you know that is uh, could possibly create a pretty predatory situation where you're you basically have the interests of of Wall Street investors to to sort of uh, sap as much value out of these students as possible over the long term. So I could see the concern about that. I also see, I think that there is a big picture argument that the pro-ISA people are making that has some salience. And I, I quote uh, a sort of ISA proponent in my piece called Will Nelligan about this, who's very articulate on this point and, and I found quite convincing, which is, you know, at this point, if a school like, you know, yet let's say, I don't know, uh, pick, pick a school, Purdue, not Purdue, a non-ISA school, any school, like they, they educate a batch of students and they charge a certain price for that education. Then the students go out into the world and if they don't succeed, the school really doesn't matter for the school. You know, they'll get paid no matter what. And, 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 and that's true in like, you can see that logic in, in mortgages, right? Like a bank originates a mortgage, mm. 
then they sell it off. You know, they don't have a real stake in, in how you do in your home, right? So like a lot of these big institutions, if it's schools or banks, they have no skin in the game, right? And this is the this is the right. this is the title of the piece. So the ISA is mm-hmm. an attempt, I think, and, and I do understand and I'm sympathetic to the logic behind it of trying to get find a way so that these big institutions that roll students through them have some skin in the game, that they only get paid if students succeed. And I do uh, I think that there's a reason why people are casting about for a solution to that because we do all feel intensely this sensation, right? That like the places that educate us, the places that we bank with, that they don't, they don't really have any stake in our success and, and we are just widgets for them. And, and so the ISA is, is, a, is in some ways a reaction to that reality. Is it one that's actually has the best interests of students at heart? I, I think that in most cases, I haven't seen that, but I do understand the sort of the search for a solution to that question of how do you make big institutions have skin in the game? Right. I mean, it's, but again, that comes down to like inserting the market in place. Cause again, the idea is that universities exist for the public good. Mm. And the idea that universities have gotten to the point where, you know, the, the education is so expensive, the, the amount, you know, operating costs, you know, keep, all these different things make it prohibitive and basically not in the public good. I'm not, not in the public interest. It's, it's only available to certain groups of people and uh, those who are willing to assume tons of student debt. Right. And I would say that, that like, so the pr- people like Elizabeth Warren and, and people on, on the left would say the, the answer to this crippling student debt problem, this overpressing of education is, is to do what you're suggesting, like reaffirm a commitment to public education and, and, and right. sort of, find a way to recenter the public good at the core of our universities. And that will, uh, we will be able to bring costs down. We will be able to educate people uh, for, for positions in the economy that aren't just about making money. And that's the way that we will, that we will improve our education. And the ISA people mm-hmm. come in and say the way that we can accomplish that, the way that we can rein in the, these runaway costs from, from universities and education is make the universities on the hook for, for only getting paid if the students succeed in the market. So you're right. It's a market. Well, one, one group of people says like, if we reaffirm this public tradition, we can solve this problem. And another group of people say, if we inject the market more firmly into these dynamics, if we inject that kind of logic into it, it will, it will bring costs down. And yeah, I think that there is a deep ideological schism there. Yeah. Um, the the actual culture war <laughs> the actual <laughs> culture war we should yeah, yeah, sure. um and leaving aside the more sweeping consequences for a moment let's mm-hmm. let's just say someone listening to this wants to pursue higher education and is considering financing it with an isa would your advice to them be uh to steer clear and pursue other funding options like subsidized loans or are there conditions you know and if there, it's the right institution, it's not a predatory, lazy, uh, you know, let's print money off the backs of these uh, poor saps institution where in which an ISA might be the best choice. Yeah, I wouldn't want anyone to take my financial advice, first of all. I would <laughs> not recommend that anyone do that. But I well, th- it's better. It's better than like Elon Musk who's like, "Don't go to college," you know, yeah. the Silicon disruptor guy. Don't go to college. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think I mean. So I I spoke to a a a woman for, in my piece who wanted to become uh, a physician's assistant, mm-hmm. and she 
had already gotten a master's degree in biology and already done an undergrad. And she was sitting on a pile of, you know, I can't remember, I think maybe $80,000 in student loans or something like this. And she didn't have the money to, to, to get her physician's assistance degree, um, you know, to pay out of the pocket. And she had sort of maxed out on the federally subsidized student loans that you can get. And so she decided to, to do an ISA where she was going to get uh, basically her physician's assistant school paid for. And she was going to pay back, I think it was 7%. It's in the pieces. Probably, I think it's 7% of her income for a couple of years in exchange. And it, you know, like I talked to her at length about it and I talked to the, the program that provided the ISA, which is called Stride. And, you know, like, who am I to second guess? She was definitely not like duped. Like she knew exactly what she was getting into. It seemed to make Mm -hmm. sense for her finances. Like, you know, I think these kinds of arrangements, you know, it's if you want to take on debt in this way, I mean, there are definitely ways and instances for people where this is makes the most sense for them, for sure. And I think that, you know, the idea that that it is just a uh, inherently predatory mode would be simplistic. I think that the argument that I'm trying to make in the piece, or at least the dynamics I'm trying to illuminate, are that it, it, at large, it's, it's emerging as a solution to to our education and student debt crisis, because there is a group of people in this country that who really think that, you know, the more market forces you inject into a situation, you will solve these problems. Uh, you know, it will sort of almost magically solve these problems. And, 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 and that is as an answer to the the broader question of how we should fund education in our society and how we should deal with debt, I find uh, troubling. But mm-hmm. I think on an individual basis, there are plenty of people who might want to, who might decide that this is a, a, a more attractive offering than a certain, I mean, there's definitely much more attractive than a lot of the private loans. Like So like over 90% yeah. of like student debt is like held by the US government and it's like subsidized and it's like at a pretty low interest rate and there's like ways you can get out of it it's not i mean it's obviously a crippling problem but like the interest rates are like capped and you can pay back as a percentage of your income in a lot of cases but then there's like this private student loan market which isn't that big it's like 10 percent of the market but the rates there are like can be like really crippling and so a lot of these isas are definitely better terms than what you'll get like going out and getting a payday loan for your you know for your education you know yeah Um, yeah so yeah, I mean, I think I think people, if, if, with the disclaimer that no one should ever listen to me about their personal finances, <laughs> they should, yeah, they, they should definitely read the fine print. Um, I think one of the major issues with a lot of these ISAs is they end up being sort of marketing documents for a lot of these organizations. Like they say, like right. we only get paid when you get paid. This is not debt. You do not owe us any money. You will only pay back into this if you succeed. That's what's going on here. And and that is a common thing that you'll hear from people who sign ISAs. That's their understanding going in. But a lot of them really aren't structured that way. You know, a lot of them are structured where you start paying back, you know, when you start making a very small amount of money and you don't have to get a job in the field you're educated in. And they're really designed to to get, you know, a maximum number of people paying in, even people who have failed or people who didn't work for. So people should be cognizant of that. I talked to a lot of people who just sign that document immediately because their understanding was, oh, okay, so this isn't debt. Like you're saying, I'll just like pay you guys back. Like if I make, if I get rich, like, okay, cool. Right. Like that, that's, that's kind of like the understanding a lot of people come away with like, oh yeah. Like if I start making a hundred thousand dollars a year, I have to pay you back. Sure. But like, that's not what it says. No. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on 
before we end? Nothing in particular. I mean, I think that it's one of the things about ISAs that I think people should keep in mind is like, you know, the, the where solutions to these problems kind of like come from and like how, for me, one of the most fascinating parts about like uh, looking into ISAs was just like how much genuine enthusiasm. And I think like across the board, almost everyone I spoke to, like I didn't find a single person really, even the proponents of ISAs who I thought were like grifters. Like there was, this was, it was like genuine enthusiasm and I would say optimism about this as a solution. And, and a lot of that I think comes from the way that solutions to problems in our society are conjured up right now. This is a, an idea that very much has resonance with the California ideology, Silicon Valley idea of the way that people succeed in the world and the way that innovation is driven and the way that human flourishing comes about, you know, it's that like you take bets on individuals and, everyone's their own little mini startup and like life is all about being like a little entrepreneur. Right. And like, and that is so in the bloodstream and in the zeitgeist and that, you know, that's yeah. not just something that uh, people talk about at conferences or people BS about on Twitter. I mean like this in a lot of ways, like this ISA craze is a human manifestation of that sort those sorts of ideas. And, 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 and very serious people are promoting it and very serious think tanks are pushing it out there and very serious money is getting behind it. And, and there are consequences to these kinds of ideas about everyone should be an entrepreneur and life is all about taking risks and, you know, everyone should be like their own little mini investor like this, that, that, that is ISAs, right? On a certain level. And, and that's yeah. what we're dealing with. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, um, that's what is, that's what's hard that's what makes this such a, um, I think, a compelling topic, exactly what you're describing, that there is this, this um, again, this divergence from education as a public good and also education as a just a, a way to get ahead in the world. There's this third, this, this third thing that's coming out, you know, California, Silicon Valley, where it's like, yeah, you're a startup. You're your own startup. <laughs> and it's that's not, I don't know. I don't know how healthy that is, but... Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that there's a place for, I think the idea that like education is only useful insofar as it gets people to the place where they can invent new things. And that like the rest of education, you can sort of figure out on your own, like you're kind of autodidact. It's like, oh yeah, like you, education is useful to like teach you how to code or how to like, you know, operate a, a, a neuron collider. And then like, they're just like, go read the great books and like you'll be fine and like you know like the idea that that education yeah. is not like a social institution where people like come together and like learn how to be people and like test out ideas of like community and democracy and like these yeah. kinds of things like the, the american public school like at its best right that that is like mm -hmm. there's not a lot of room for that concept in a certain in that conception of of, of of the individual which is like everyone's a founder everyone's a startup founder and so i think you see that in a lot in that in, in the isa is like one of the influential position papers out there that's like boosting ISAs from like the Manhattan Institute, like a, a right wing think tank is like this idea of like, yeah, how do we like inject more like entrepreneurship into education? Like, how do we get students to think about themselves as entrepreneurs? Like that that's the idea, right? It's like, I am an entrepreneur, you invest in me, and then I'll pay you back. And like, everyone's a little entrepreneur. Um, that's, that's the idea ideology about around. It. And it's not surprising that that's on the upswing right now. It doesn't come from nowhere. No. Yeah. 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 And I mean, 
when you say that, and then also hearing about uh, Dusan's the actual like coursework, the the actual day to day of being at um, an institution like Holbrook, that that it doesn't seem to respect that people have different ways of learning, like something that is just at the core of education. There is no there is no sort of give or variance to you know help people who maybe don't learn in this exact way that the school doesn't actually really uh you know you may not know that you're not somebody who can just be an autodidact yeah absolutely and and, and pe- people recognize that too like you know one of the people mm-hmm. i spoke to in my piece was a, a woman who went to holburton and overlapped with dusan who did super well and now they work at a big tech company they're an engineer they're making a bunch of money you know and but they were at at the school recognizing that what was going on at least in their telling was really unfair and that they were they recognized they had a, their own special skill set that allowed this to work for them but were mm-hmm. their peers sort of fall by the wayside and just totally kind of flame out and and have you know and they didn't believe in the educational model at all they they just succeeded and that was really powerful mm-hmm. to me reporting this to sort of talk to people who you know, this actually did work for them, but they were like broad minded enough to realize that like, just because it worked for them doesn't mean it was working for everyone. And I thought that was really powerful, honestly. And then they went to bat, you know, for these other students, because they felt like that broadly what was happening was unfair. Maybe they read the great books on their own. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't mean to knock uh, being an autodidact. They're reading the great books. No, no, no. Yeah. It's great. It's I great. Do. If you can do it, it's great. <laughs> I don't know. I think for me, I was th- I was reading this uh, piece in the New Yorker the other day about this founder who founded some startup that was like personal assistant startup where like you have a personal assistant. It's like a bot, but it's really like an amalgamation of a bunch of like Southeast Asians who like work for you and like oh, just Jesus. do and, and And so like the founder of this company like, was who was interviewed at length in the New Yorker was someone who who considered themselves an autodidact and it was and it was like oh I only read the great books or something and the it was like very obnoxious about it It was like kept quoting like you know Marcus Aurelius or like something like that just Mm. like really but then like at some point the author was able to slip into the piece this like hilarious detail that that, that this dude had never heard of Philip Roth (laughs) (laughs) so it's like this guy who was like really proud of his like accomplishments, like reading yeah. the great books and like how everyone could be an autodidact and then had like just recently become aware of Philip Roth. And it's like fine if you've never heard of Philip Roth, like yeah. whatever, like a lot of people to not have heard, but like to be someone this fat, like it just encapsulated something for me. It was like this guy like bragging about the breadth of his knowledge and then it's like never heard of Philip yeah. Roth, but like. <laughs> no, no, I know. Well, yeah, it's the, the myth that any that anybody who pretends like they know everything and then they don't, you you, you kind of have it coming, but anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I don't remember how the New Yorker did it, but they slipped it in very cunningly where I just like <laughs> chuckled to myself. It wasn't like a big part no, of the No, 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 no. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. I think it was really, like you said, it's sort of touching on something really deep that's happening in kind of all levels of society and that it's happening in when it comes to education is particularly worrying. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. 
The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.